Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. This morning, it is Thursday, the 12th of August. I'm having a hard time remembering that it's August. <clears throat> it's August. Hot as blazes outside, so that's probably a good, good reminder. It's not September yet. <clears throat> um, moral question this morning. Moral question this morning. Is it okay to spend money you do not have and take it from people whom you never intend to repay? That's my question this morning. Is it okay to spend money you don't have and take it from people whom you never intend to repay? It's kind of theft. It is a kind of theft. And so that was a conversation that emerged um, after the Senate passed trillions of dollars authorizing new spending for a combination of infrastructure. And then what would be the most massive expansion of social programs, uh, social welfare programs here in the United States in generations. So how are you going to pay for it is is a second question, because rightly, the first question is, what is government supposed to do? What is government supposed to do? What is the scope of what government is supposed to do? That's the first conversation each and every one of us needs to have. When we are thinking about and entering into the conversation of the day related not only to the passage of the infrastructure bill, but the what will be now ongoing conversation about three point five trillion dollars in spending related to um, the very broad expansion of all kinds of social programs. And and things related to climate change and and all kinds of other stuff. So there's there's just a lot that would be in this reconciliation spending package, which, by the way, has not actually been written. The three point five trillion dollars is the sort of maximum bottom line number that as everyone is writing their budget proposals, you know, once it's all added up, it needs to come under that cap. But how are you going to pay for it is a question that follows the question, what is government supposed to do? And does the care and welfare and education and comprehensive health care of every citizen and every non-citizen who makes their way here, um, does all of that fall into the framework of what government is supposed to do? That's the question that I think each and every one of us needs to engage. And then, yes, we have to ask the question, how are we going to pay for that? Which gets us back to the question where we started, is it okay to spend money you do not have and take it from people whom you never intend to repay. So those are some of the questions I would encourage you to consider um, as the conversations uh, of the day will almost certainly include what the Senate has now done and what the U.S. Congress is then poised to take up. 
A few highlights from what was called a Senate voterama. So in the reconciliation process, if there's anything that you want to have addressed down the road, you have to get it uh, sort of on the record through an amendment process. So they did a 14-hour uh, voterama in the Senate. A few highlights from that. All Republicans backed an amendment from Senator James Lankford uh, from Oklahoma to oppose federal funding for abortion. His amendment passed because he received the support of one Democrat, and that would be West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Um, An amendment from Senator Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana, supporting banning abortion after 20 weeks. It failed despite Manchin's support because one Republican voted against it. And um, and then uh, this may be heartbreaking uh, defeat. And this one was in relationship to um, an amendment that would have banned the abortion of children after they're diagnosed with Down syndrome. Senator Steve Daines of Montana tweeted this. Senate Democrats just voted to allow the most lethal kind of discrimination imaginable being singled out and brutally killed because of a Down syndrome diagnosis. Every life is precious, no matter how small no matter how many chromosomes you have. So um, just want to lift up a few of those things. You're going to see a lot of headlines related to all of this. Um, there is uh, now a, a federal ban on the use of or a, a ban on the use of federal funds for backing critical race theory in schools. So that seems positive, um, as well as an, one amendment that received unanimous support, the entirety of the U.S. Senate present to vote. So that was 99 senators are now on record. They do not support the defunding of the police. So that's good. All right, we got a range of headlines to cover with our friend Ben Johnson. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. of headlines that I would encourage you to check out today at dailywire.com. Ben Johnson joins us now. You can read what he's writing at dailywire.com. Ben, welcome back. Good to, good to be with you as always. All right. So I got to tell you, scanning um, scanning the headlines today, there's a number of things I'd love to talk with you about. Let's talk about China. Let's talk about the theft of intellectual property. Let's talk about China having stolen enough information that actually they could produce dossiers on every American. That's 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 pretty. Um, these are pretty staggering. Where are we getting this information, and uh, and how how reliable you think this information is? Well, this is coming directly from the U.S. Senate, so I think it's uh, I think it's incredibly reliable. Uh, where this came from was a uh, something that almost never happens on Capitol Hill: the Senate Intelligence Committee. So uh, this is, you know, the um, the the branch of the U.S. Senate that's uh, dealing with confidential information. Usually they meet behind closed doors. They don't usually meet in public. They decided they wanted to have a public meeting last Wednesday on the Chinese threat. And both the co-chairs, Republican and Democrat, agreed this is something that needed to get out into the public. So Marco Rubio, uh, of course, Republican, but, uh, but also Virginia Senator uh, uh, Davis, uh, both agreed that uh, this needs to be uh, something that people talk about. Uh, I'm sorry, Warner. So uh, this this uh, got out in public. 
what they were saying was there has been a massive wealth transfer. Uh, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, from U.S. companies to Chinese companies uh, through nefarious means, either through hacking networks, through stealing information by uh, burrowing espionage agents into uh, into uh, infrastructure. Uh, all these kinds of things are taking place that uh, cost the average family between four and six thousand dollars a piece. So that's incredible. Uh, also, you're you're hearing that uh, several people who testified there said China is getting all the information that it humanly can on as many people as possible. Uh, they have enough information that uh, they said 80% of Americans have had all of the information that exists on them in the cyber realm. So we're talking credit report, health records, financial records, all of it uh, has been taken by the Chinese. 80% of all Americans have had everything taken. And the other 20% have had something taken somewhere along the line. So uh, that's that's the extent of the threat. And it's something that uh, the media almost never cover. I gave it a week uh, before I wrote anything about it, just to see what the, the coverage would be. And other than a couple of conservative outlets and a couple of outlets that are based on Capitol Hill that cover everything that happens, uh, there's been very little coverage of a massive threat. Yeah, the threat from China just seems to grow and deepen every uh, every day. Uh, I think it was just last week that we learned that they have thousands of new missile silos um, with nuclear warheads capable of traveling 6,000 miles, which puts every part of the United States in range of their ICBMs. Um, I, I just, I don't know, like, are we past the point where people get outraged about anything in terms of, like, a genuine global threat? Like, China is a real threat. I mean, it's real. It is. Well, it absolutely is. Uh, it's very real. Matter of fact, one, one of the most chilling parts of the testimony was uh, from Anna Pulisi, who talked about the fact that uh, China is not only looking for information, they're also looking for DNA because they're conducting DNA tests. And at one point, uh, Reuters did an investigation just uh, last month where they found that there was a pregnancy company that was taking the biological information of pregnancy tests and putting it in databases. So it, it had American women's DNA while they were testing for pregnancy. Uh, it's it's incredibly chilling the kind of information that they're taking, uh, you know, the most intimate private uh, part of yourself, literally what makes you you uh, is, is being taken away and uh, without anyone's knowledge or consent. So uh, hopefully that will stir some outrage and cause people to take some kind of a countermeasure against China while we still have the economic ability to do so. Mm. All right. We're going to pause right there. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to turn our attention to a few other headlines. We're talking with Ben Johnson. You can read about what we are talking about at dailywire.com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson, you can read what he is writing at dailywire.com. Ben, there is a piece uh, posted at Daily Wire that definitely caught my attention. Um, it's a story out of Atlanta. An Atlanta public school told a Catholic couple they could remove their child from the district if they wanted to avoid LGBTQ issues in kindergarten. So um, brief us in on what's happening here, and then I would love to have just a a bit of a wide-ranging conversation about 
the challenges that parents are facing in relationship to public schools, um, not just on this issue, but on a range of topics? Well, it is definitely a broad discussion. And uh, this is, of course, happening in the Atlanta public school system. There's a, a Catholic couple who has a child who's in kindergarten. Uh, obviously, they want to withhold their name, but they uh, they came to our friend Chrissy Clark over at uh, Daily Wire and gave her the story. They said that uh, in the child's classroom, they have textbooks, uh, of course, uh, in, the, in the classroom, but then they have a, a library, including the book I Am Jazz. Now, some of your listeners may remember that book, but it's a, it's a pro-transgender book. And then it has another one telling people that uh, you know, they should they should look to the classroom as their source of support and strength. So if your parents don't affirm your gender or they don't affirm other lifestyle choices you may make, then you look at uh, your teacher and your fellow classmates as people who are on your side, supporting you and your choice, even if that goes against what your, te- what your parents uh, believe in the morality they're trying to teach you. So this is basically uh, the Atlanta Public Schools uh, affirming uh, the uh, the secular zeitgeist, uh, affirming uh, the uh, chaos when it comes to gender, and then using parents' taxpayers' dollars to uh, fight against the the values that those parents want to instill in their children. Uh, so when when the parents objected, they said, "Can you move Can you move our child to a different classroom, maybe that doesn't have?" This kind of an influence. And they said, it doesn't matter what classroom they're in. These books are going to be available in our school. We're going to uh, have those a part of every classroom. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. Uh, so their child can go somewhere else, but their money can't. Because in Georgia, you can't, um, your money doesn't follow your kid. So, right. So I think this right. gets it's, us into a, a larger... Yeah, it gets us into a larger conversation about school vouchers, about the ways in which, um, uh, you know, frankly, Christians are going to have to become activists in states where the money doesn't follow the child because the children are going to have to leave, in many cases, the public um, the public education system because of this kind of activism on the parts of school boards and and teachers. So which brings us to uh, a headline today, Loudoun County School Board has approved guidelines on transgender student rights. As you know, the story's out of Virginia. I think everybody saw this coming. Um, maybe what we didn't see coming was that at that school board meeting, you know, a teacher stood up and resigned. You know, she said, I can't teach here. She's not the she's not the first, but she's the um, you know, most high profile right now. She's a young, you know, she's a young woman. She wanted to make a career of this. That's not going to happen now. She cannot in good conscience, um, as a Christian, serve in the Loudoun County public schools because she is not willing to participate in the delusion that, you know, children can show up on any given day and announce that they are uh, presenting as a gender other than biological reality and that she is going to then be held accountable under these new guidelines to refer to that child by whatever name they they want on that day and by whatever pronouns they want. It's just it's going to be chaos. This is just it's just fomenting further chaos in public education. And I don't know about you, but I mean, we got enough chaos in the classroom. Well, this this is the opposite of what education is supposed to be. I mean, education is supposed to take children with the understanding that, uh, in the words of John Locke, they're a tabula rasa, which is to say that uh, they they don't have any grounding or formation. They need to be taught everything that they are going to be taught to use in life. And that's primarily the job of uh, the parents, but that's also the job of the school. And instead, this is inverting that, saying that, 
whatever your reality is, uh, even if you're a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, whatever it is that you say is true is equally true and valid with actual reality. And it's not merely this. This was the final step and something that's been progressing for a very long time. But uh, it's it's the opposite of education where you, you try and ground people in truth. You ground them in reality. You get them used to a life in, uh, in the way that the world actually works. And uh, this, this, it makes it impossible for anyone who lives in reality, let alone who has Christian convictions or uh, Judeo-Christian beliefs about uh, the, the, the reality of creation at the time of Genesis, male and female created he them, that it's impossible for anyone to work in the public schools. So if you've seen any of that dramatic footage out of Loudoun County and uh, you know, the very raucous uh, school board meetings that have been taking place, parents are rising up trying to take back the curriculum trying to dislodge uh, some elements of the uh, curriculum from the hands of the uh, establishment in the, in the school systems, administrators, very well-funded with their tax dollars. And uh, the, the young lady who quit uh, as a teacher said, we need to have an exodus out of the public schools. I call for you to, quote, flood the private schools uh, from now on. So I think that's, that's a call that increasingly we need to continue fighting in order to uh, to make room, but it uh, it very well may be that in the interim, until that fight is won, I would not risk your child. Take your child and put them in a private school and homeschool. We've seen the number of people in homeschool double during the pandemic, so uh, increasingly that's something that we're going to have to turn to, and that parents are indeed already turning to. All right, and let me uh, remind you, if you're saying right now, hey, not every family can afford that, um, let's help them do so. Um, check out what, you know, the activism of EdChoice, that's educational choice, but it's edchoice.org to learn more about school vouchers, how money follows kids in lots of states, um, and so how, how to help make that change in your state if that's not already a reality. I think that Christians are going to have to be activated um, on this front. All right, um, Ben, uh there's so many things that you and I could talk about today. Maybe we should, um, maybe we should leave it right there uh, today. Um, I don't know. Do you think we have time for one more? I can. I, can I do this one? This is not even on our list. But here's the thing: there's also parents behaving really badly out there at some school board meetings, threatening people. Um, you know, saying we're, you know, we we can find you. And this is all about mask mandates. And so can you just speak for a moment about sort of like the appropriate way to approach the conversations of the day if you are a parent and you are frustrated with what's happening or potentially going to be happening in your school district related to mask mandates? Because there are appropriate ways to behave as Christians, and then there are just really grossly inappropriate ways to behave. Well, nothing can get someone as upset as something that affects their child. So obviously uh, emotions are heightened and uh, these are often contentious and uh, there, there's a, a very pitched back and forth at a lot of these meetings. And sometimes there's genuine disrespect shown to the parents. And so a lot of times they will react in a way that is inappropriate. Uh, the fact of the matter is whenever we speak in public, the correct way of handling this is with Christian love, charity, and grace, to deal with respect even to those who don't give it to you. Uh, But in order to speak the truth, not your truth, but the truth, that's what's the most important, the most powerful thing. As uh, as, uh, one of the great uh, Russian dissidents of our time said, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one word of truth is stronger than the entire world. Amen. Amen. Let's just keep speak, speaking the truth out there, and let's do so in ways that honor Jesus. Ben Johnson, thank you for always demonstrating that to us. You guys can read what Ben's writing at dailywire.org. Did I get that right? Did I have that right? I don't want to say the wrong website. Or, or Daily dot com, Wire. Yeah. 
Oh, dot com. Dailywire.com. Felt like that wasn't right. Oh, all right. All right. Hey, thanks, Ben. Thank you so much. God bless. We'll be right back. Let's just go ahead and have a text line throwdown. What is the best state fair? Which state fair is the best state fair and why? All right. So there you go. Text me at 877-933-2484 because today is, drum roll please, Paul Perot, the first day of what? Well, it's the first day of the Iowa State Fair in Des Moines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they think theirs is the best. That's what I hear. Well, Mm -hmm. they made a couple of musicals out of it, you know, a couple of movies. So, you know, there's the whole Rodgers and Hammerstein mystique around it. I see. Yeah. So, um, they also carve butter. Yes, the this butter right cow. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Yeah. Do people then eat that butter? Like, do you, do, um, do, is there a I, schmear involved at the end? Or like, I, and, and, you know, and it's a particularly hot summer, so, yeah. like... Just like in a chilled, we need some more. And I am clearly in need of some more information about the Iowa State Fair. I feel like there are certainly people listening. Oh, we have a little news about Des Moines. Do we not? Well, like it's possible that people in Des Moines are not listening to us live on the radio right now, but they are going to be able to soon. By the next State Fair, yes, they it's should amazing. be able to listen to uh, Faith Radio live in Des Moines. So that. So I feel like I feel like we have a year to get ready. Oh, yeah, you and I yeah, have a yep. year to get ready to bro- basically be broadcasting live at the Iowa mm-hmm. State Fair, just because we will be broadcasting in Des Moines by this time next year. That and enjoying but- everything on a stick, <laughs> pork chop on a stick, you, you name it. They have they have things on a stick that will. I don't know. Total don't know. total. You know, food sin. That- it's wonderful. So I think that is all about the portability. Yes. I think that part of fair food is how could I make something that's not portable portable, which Mm -hmm. is why they started packing mac and cheese into little, you know, bites. So then they could deep, you know, like a deep fried mac and cheese bite because then you could pick it up and eat it because it's hard to pick up and eat mac and cheese. Exactly. I'm just saying. Like, it's just, yeah. All right. So um, I did see gluten-free corn dogs. And so I'm just saying that they're even getting into the how could we make things that um, are for people other than the people who are willing to eat just anything on a stick. There you there go. You go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we got to get to a conversation with Brett McCracken from the Gospel Coalition. Here's what we're going to talk about. So how do we get to the place where people are able to move away from the foundations of the Christian faith, like they've been raised in it, they uh, they have been believers, um, and then they start migrating away. Um, how does that happen? And Brett's going to talk about some of the ways that we undermined the foundations of the Christian faith, and particularly um, in relationship to the compromising on sexual ethics. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I am Iowa born and bred, and on Iowa. How much TV do you watch as a family? Do you have movie nights with your kids? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I know it's not always easy to agree on good movies with your teenager, but make an effort to watch things with them, not for your own entertainment, but to give you a front row seat to hear what their world is like. And you can talk about the movie as the credit rolls, kick around the moral issues featured in the film, lob open-ended questions about whether or not your kids would act, choose, or say the same things as the main character. Here's an opportunity for you, mom and dad, to connect with your team, spend time together, and help your child become morally discerning and media literate. 
Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining us again today, Brett McCracken, Senior Editor and Director of Communications at the Gospel Coalition. We have enjoyed conversations with him about his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. He's also joined us on occasion to talk about some of his articles posted at the Gospel Coalition. So we're going to look at one of those today. We're going to talk about the foundations of our biblical sexual ethics and what happens when we undermine those foundations and what that leads to in terms of compromise. Brett, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me, Carmen. So set this up for us. I like the way that um, we're talking about these foundational issues and then the Jenga piece that's most likely to cause a tower of faith to collapse in terms of these deconstruction conversations happening in the culture. Yeah, so uh, the origins of of this article for me, a couple things. One is just the, the deconstruction journey thing. It just seems like there's more and more uh, of that going on. And I personally have many, um, you know, friends who grew up in the church, family members, et cetera, who are going on these kind of deconstruction journeys. And so as I was thinking about those and noticing connections, um, one, one realization I came to is that almost all of these deconstruction stories, um, kind of a, a linchpin issue that, um, that they, tend to revolve around is um, sexual ethics and and not really being able to um, reconcile kind of what they want to be true on that issue with what the Bible says. And um, so kind of deconstructing faith uh, accordingly. So, so yeah, I really do think, you know, the, the, the sexual ethics piece is kind of a Jenga piece that once you kind of start tinkering with that and remove that um, the whole structure um, collapses and, and, and for, for important reasons, right? Because once you once you start having scripture, you know, not say what it says about a certain issue, or you twist it a little bit to to be less um, or to be more palatable, I guess um, suddenly everything is up for grabs with scripture. You can start doing that with any issue um, that you're not quite comfortable with that you come across in scripture. So it tends to be kind of a, a common story that biblical sexual ethics, if not the origin point for deconstruction stories, it's a crucial kind of um, stop in the in the path. Yeah, and if I feel like I am in a position to judge Scripture, if I am in a position to be the authority, my feelings, my emotions, my friends, my desires could be set yeah. as an authority over the Scriptures, then it's not just on this one um, question or this one conversation piece where I am going to yeah be willing to set aside the teaching of Scripture um, in terms of how I live my life, the decisions that I make, um, the choices along the way. So talk with us about, um, you know, even for people steeped in the Scriptures, raised in the church from a very young age, moving away from not just biblical sexual ethics, but then, you know, moving away from the faith altogether. What are some of the um, fast tracks that we take to compromised faith? I know that you start off by describing one as consumerism. Yeah, so there's five that I that I highlight in the article. And um, 
And there's probably more, but you know, I was just trying to think of what are the what are the most common pathways uh, that I mm. see in terms of deconstruction journeys, and in, in terms of if you go all the way back to the faith of someone's upbringing, you know, what were the seeds that were sown back then that now kind of lead to this shaky place uh, where they're deconstructing their faith later in life? So yeah, consumeristic faith I think is a big one. It's a very subtle orientation that, uh, and especially in America, we're not always aware that this is kind of the posture that we're taking towards faith. Um, but it's very insidious. And it's, it's um, you know, I really do think this is kind of the biggest one. Because when you look at Christianity from a consumer lens, it's it's all about, you know, how does it serve me? How does it make my life easier, more comfortable? Um, it's you don't really have much tolerance for um, pain or the cost of discipleship, kind of the the issues, the topics where it's costly to follow Jesus and to be a Christian. Uh, if you're if you're looking at it through a consumer lens, then you're only really going to be bought into the faith as long as it's um, serving you and kind of easy and comfortable. So if that's the if that's the orientation of your faith, you're on very shaky ground um, on a number of issues, not just sexual ethics, because the minute there's a difficulty or there's some belief in Christianity that the culture looks, you know, uh, unfavorably upon, um, then you're not you're just going to easily walk away because you're you know your faith doesn't serve you anymore at that point. So I think the consumerism piece is a big one. Um, I can talk through the other four if you want, Carmen. Um, I'll try to be quick. But, um, yeah, no, I think that's great. Maybe yeah. I just tell people really quick, um, remind them we're yeah. talking with Brett McCracken. The article is five foundations that lead to compromise on sexual ethics, and you can find it at the Gospel Coalition. Um, we have talked about the first one, and that is consumeristic. And next, we're going to talk about the pragmatic. Yeah, so this is also another common orientation. I think in especially like Western American Christianity, it's basically the idea that it tends to come from a good heart, a good motivation. Like we want to get the gospel to as many people as possible, as efficiently as possible. We, we want to remove any hindrances to that. Um, but the the downside of that approach is I've seen it kind of become a little overly concerned with like PR and kind of the image of Christianity because there's such a concern for not wanting to turn anyone off. Um, this is kind of like the seeker sensitive approach, right? Like you're so aware of the seeker um, that you end up downplaying or not really talking about the, the hard stuff, the, the parts of the Bible that might turn a seeker away. So while that pragmatic approach has some, you know, good intentions, I think it leads to bad results when, when it means sidelining or diminishing um, the hard truths because you're worried it'll turn people away. So I've seen that happen a lot on the sexual ethics issue where there's a mega church or some kind of Christian celebrity who has a lot to lose if they alienate audiences. And so they end up not saying anything they they can't be pinned down if 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 asked you know if pressed what do you believe about you know homosexuality or what the bible says about that they don't want to say anything they end up being silent and and that's a form of compromise so so the pragmatic one is is insidious uh, the third one i talk about is political so an overly politicized faith 
for obvious reasons, sets us up for compromise because once politics becomes the framework through which you kind of look at faith and, and read scripture, it's going to become easy to undermine scripture or kind of force it into the box that you want to force it into to serve your political interests and your political tribe. And of course, we're seeing that um, on, on every side of the political spectrum these days. Um, the fourth one is um, kind of an emotionalistic faith, what I call kind of just an all feeling um, orientation of Christianity. Um, it's kind of a therapeutic type of Christianity where it's the mountaintop experience and the, you know, how does the worship make me feel? And um, it's kind of a good vibes only Christianity that tends to avoid the, the judgment side of God's character and wrath and things like that. And so when it comes to things like sexual ethics, the very thought that, that you know, God would condemn certain things or that it wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't allow someone to pursue what feels like an authentic part of who they are or an authentic desire, that just feels mean and cruel. Uh, when, when your Christianity is kind of oriented around this overly emotionalistic, um, good vibes kind of thing, um, yeah, it just becomes, it tends to become wishy-washy on, on this issue. Uh, and then hey, Brett, finally, let's take a, let's take a quick yeah. pause before we talk about the fifth one. Um, cause we got to okay. take a quick break right now. I'm talking with Brett McCracken. We're talking through the five foundations. Actually, I would say the erosions of the foundations that lead to compromise on sexual ethics. You can find it at the gospelcoalition.org. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation now with Brett McCracken. We're talking about his article posted right now at thegospelcoalition.org. It is five foundations that lead to compromise on sexual ethics. We've already talked through the first four, consumeristic, pragmatic, political, and emotionalistic. I listed those as um, autonomy, popularity, political correctness, and feelings. So there you go. That was my cheat sheet version. Um, And then and then we get to the fifth one, which is cerebral. And I actually think, Brett, this is the one that most sort of historical apologetics has been aimed at. But in yeah. our culture, this is just one of the five. Yeah. And, and this is an interesting one because um, you would think that being kind of steeped in doctrine and in the Bible, you know, would put you on a really solid foundation to be able to kind of stand up to the cultural pressures on this issue. Um, but I've actually seen a lot of people in my circles who who know all the right things in their head, and they know the Bible inside and out. They know theology. And nevertheless, I'm seeing a lot of them just uh, shift on biblical sexual ethics. And so it's it's been puzzling to kind of wrap my head around that. But what I write about in the article uh, on the overly cerebral type of faith is what tends to go wrong there, I think, is that you, there's a disconnect between the head and kind of the the rest of your life. So you kind of, you know the right things, but you, the way you live, there isn't necessarily kind of a direct correlation there. Um, and so you, this is where you see a lot of hypocrisy, right? Where uh, you might have a, a, a seminary student who's like brilliant on the Bible, but the way they live their life is is hedonistic and they're kind of sleeping with their girlfriend or whatever and uh, doing all these things. And I think that disconnect between knowing and doing 
and kind of knowing what God says, but not obeying it. Um, of course that, that sets you up for compromise because especially with something like sexual ethics, like the minute you're confronted with something where your desires come into play and your lusts and things like that, um, you might know all the right things, uh, in your head, but if, if you're not used to kind of, um, a connection to your behavior and you've kind of cordoned off the, the doctrine in your head, uh, then it's easy to just kind of live in a way that's disconnected from that. And I see that happen sadly, uh, all the time. So not that you need, um, not that you need an editor, but because all the other ones are like consumeristic, pragmatic, political, emotionalistic, I think this one could be like compartmentalistic, like where there you've you made these like compartments, because I do mm -hmm. think it's a, it's this yeah. compart, you know, it's this practice of compartmentalizing where, okay, I can yeah. think these things about the Christian faith, but, you know, I have a, a secret porn addiction or I have, you know, this going on over here in terms of outside relationships or, you know, yeah, I mean, just treatment yeah. of of men or women or thoughts outside of marriage, regardless of yeah. actions outside of marriage. Like it is it is a complex mess out there when we talk about sexual mm -hmm. ethics among Christians in within Christian communities, within Christian households. And that is um, so I don't want to suggest that. You know, just because we know all the right doctrinal answers to a question, we're actually living the faith in any sort of integrated way. Because I think this compartmentalization is something we all learned from a culture that started separating out religious identity from, like, specifically worship. Like, the reduction of um, religious liberty to freedom of worship, like what you do in some sacred space for one hour a week with some group of people we don't know— like, that's how far the freedom of religion got reduced to instead of the fullness of the expression of my religious convictions in every aspect of my life, including the public square. So I think there's there are concurrent streams of things happening here in the culture that lead us to these places. And I just felt like your identif your identification of them and just being able to walk and talk through it has been really helpful. Good. Yeah. I mean, and and I think it can be a little bit depressing or um, discouraging to read an article like this. And because honestly, we're all prone, to, you know, even myself, like, as I wrote this, I'm like, yeah, like, I can identify some of these tendencies in, in my own church background and in my own upbringing. But I think the the importance of like, reminding ourselves of these temptations and these potentially shaky foundations that that kind of make up our our Christian faith is just so we're aware and so that we can kind of um, put on our guard and be ready to, to stand more more securely on, on the foundation of God's word ultimately. And I, I, I think ultimately that is what it comes down to, right? Are we building our Christian foundation on God's word? And is that enough, right? Are we satisfied with that being the foundation or are we building it on all these other things like, you know, consumerism, being served, being being happy, having good vibes, um, you know, all those things. So uh, we need to be satisfied with building our faith on the, the firm foundation of, of, of God's word and what he says is true. And so I like that you point us to the passage in Matthew 7 about the wise and foolish builders and getting us to ask the question, you know, upon what is my, uh, is my mm -hmm. life really constructed um, and then, you know, asking the question about, you know, wins and the 
where the wind might blow me, because that led me to think a lot about, you know, what Paul says um, in, in Ephesians about whether or not, you know, I'm just going to be blown about by every wind of doctrine and pe- people's trickery. Yeah. And, um, you know, or am I am I going to stand? Am I going to stand where I know the foundation is firm? And am I going to take a stand there come what may? Because that's the challenge for convictional Christians in the culture. It's, it is, and it's such a challenge. I mean, there's there's winds coming at us from multiple directions, um, as this article kind of shows. And a, another a book that I would recommend is Trevin Wax's Multidirectional Leader, which is he's kind of getting at similar ideas. Like, there's multiple threats on multiple sides, and part of faithfulness in in today's world is just being aware of that. Like, there, there's not just one one way that we can, um, you know, go wrong on this issue. So we have to kind of, yeah, be looking around at the different directions that the winds are coming and, and try to be prepared um, by shoring up our, our faith, you know, with with God's word and with a faith that is rooted in, in ultimately just trusting that, that God, you know, knows what he's doing and, and knew what he was doing when he wrote scripture um, and love and loving what he wrote, right? Not just begrudgingly accepting it, but but learning to to love his word. Uh, I think that's absolutely crucial. All right, that's Brett McCracken. You can follow him on Twitter at Brett McCracken. You can read what he's white, writing at the Gospel Coalition. He did a little uh, hat tip there to Trevin Wax. You would remember Trevin from. Uh, our conversation about his book, This Is Our Time, and, and also Rethink Yourself. Um, I love Trevin's seven when he posts those as well. So you can find him at the Gospel Coalition where uh, where he writes as well. Hey, thank you so much, Brett, as always, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Always a pleasure. Likewise. We'll be right back. Wow, you guys are full of all kinds of information today. Uh, The information related to what's going on in schools across the country has been streaming in since our conversation with Ben Johnson a little bit earlier. So, yes, I am now read in on the other big controversy in the Atlantic public school system, which is apparently that there was a uh, an elementary school that was segregated by classroom according to race. Yeah, that's not legal. Um, so that was going on. And then uh, thank you to the listener who also sent me the information out of Oregon related to uh, the governor there signing into law a bill that no longer requires high school graduates to be able to read, write or do math. Yep. There you go. That's going on. I don't know. Apparently all high school diplomas are now not created equally. Another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.